You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Welcome to Whitefields. We're glad you're here. If you would please open with me in your Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Acts today in chapter 26. Currently at Whitefields in a study of the book of Acts on Sunday mornings, uh, which is the history of earliest Christianity. And we have been going through this book verse by verse and chapter by chapter for several weeks, even several months now. We've been looking at the revolution which took place in the world as the gospel of Jesus Christ went out into the world in those early days after the resurrection of Jesus. Now in just two weeks, you can see we're getting towards the end of this book. In just two weeks, we're going to be finishing this study and we're going to begin our next series, our next study, which is going to be a study of Paul's letter to the Philippians and it's titled The Pursuit of Happiness. So be on the lookout for that. Don't miss it. Uh, Until then, though, these last couple chapters here in the book of Acts are some of the best. So we're going to really enjoy these. Please bow your heads with me and let's pray as we open God's word. Heavenly Father, we come to you as one who is great, one who is holy, Lord, one who creates us, one who sustains our lives, one who has shown that you love us, and we thank you for that love. We thank you for what you have done in our lives, and we thank you for what you are doing in our community, and we we ask, Lord, this morning as we open your word that you would speak to us and that you would give us ears to hear, Lord, that your word would come into our, our ears and our minds, Lord, that it would sink down into our hearts, that it would take root, and Lord, that it would produce much fruit for our good and for your glory. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me begin by asking you a question. How did you come to be persuaded of the things that you believe? In other words, how did you come to be persuaded to believe the things which you believe? See, persuasion is something which all of us are engaged in every single day. If you have kids, you're constantly trying to persuade your kids. You're trying to persuade them to do things which you know are right for them, to stay away from drugs and to be polite and to eat well and go to bed on time and stuff like that. At work, if you're in business, you probably are involved in persuasion of some type every single day, trying to persuade people to do things or think a certain way. See, persuasion is the process through which a person becomes convinced about something or through which a person changes their mind or or comes to believe that something is true. Now, we should say that persuasion is not the same as manipulation. See, manipulation is about control. It's about coercion, trying to get someone, someone to do something, uh, but not necessarily in their best interest. But see, persuasion is not a bad thing. None of us was born believing the things which we believe. We all had to come to believe these things. We all had to be persuaded to believe the things which we believe in one way or another. And here in Acts chapter 26, Paul the Apostle, he is on trial And he is speaking in his own defense. And as he's doing this, though, it's going to become clear that his main goal as he speaks in this court hearing is not actually to get himself off the hook. His main goal as he speaks to these people in this hearing that he's in is actually to to bring his listeners to persuade them to put their faith in Jesus. And so the title of today's message is The Art of Persuasion. And here's what we're going to be talking about. First, we're going to talk about persuasion, and then we're going to talk about decision. 
Let me bring you back up to speed on what's happening here as we jump into Acts chapter 26. Uh, Paul the Apostle is on trial for a crime that he didn't commit. In fact, he's faced a series of trials up until this point, and he has not been treated fairly by the court system. He has been facing corruption, he's been facing injustice, and he's been, tre- he's been being treated as a political pawn, really between the Roman officials and the Jewish religious leaders. And so finally, Paul decided to play the one card that he had in his hand. And that was this. He appealed his case to Caesar. Now, this was a system that they had in place. It was the right of any Roman citizen who felt that they were not being treated fairly by the courts. This was a safeguard against corruption. And by doing this, Paul put the Roman governor, his name is Claudius Festus, who's in charge of his case, he put him in a really tough spot. Because that Roman governor, Claudius Festus, he had not done the right thing in Paul's case. He had, not, he had kept Paul in custody rather than releasing him. Uh, in order to, he had done that in order to gain political favor with the Jewish religious leaders. And so when Paul appealed his case to Caesar, Claudius Festus, the Roman governor, he realized that he's in hot water. He's in trouble. Because now he has to come up with a good explanation for why he didn't release a man who's clearly innocent. So when Paul's case is going to get to Caesar eventually, it's not just going to be Paul who's on trial. It's going to be Festus also on trial for corruption, for a miscarriage of justice. Why he kept a, a an innocent man in jail, and he could face imprisonment or even death for that. And so he's in hot water. He has to come up with a reason why he did what he did. And so Festus, we we read last week, he's new in town. He's just fresh off the boat from Rome. He's a Roman governor, and now he's been given this job of being in charge of this region of Judea. Now, he doesn't really understand Jewish theology and Jewish politics very well, so he called on someone he knew, a man named King Agrippa. King Agrippa is a figurehead king uh, who was from the Herod dynasty. You might remember Herod the Great and, and the different Herods throughout the Bible. Well, there was a dynasty that ruled, and they at one time ruled over all of Judea. At this point, though, in history, they're really kind of just figureheads, kind of like the, the British royal family. So Festus, looking for some help to find something that he can accuse Paul of as he sends Paul to this hearing in Rome, he calls on King Agrippa, who has grown up in Judea, who's very familiar with uh, Jewish politics and Jewish religion, and he calls Agrippa to come and listen to Paul's case and help him come up with an explanation that he can send to Rome for why he might have kept Paul in custody so that Festus doesn't get in trouble for being corrupt. So here's the scene. They've they've organized this big event. We we began this section last week. They organized this big event, which is really open to the public. This isn't a legally binding trial that they're in right now. It's more of a public event. Uh, All of the cultural elites are there. Dignitaries, the king and the queen are there. It's open to the public. It's being held in a public amphitheater there on the coast of the Mediterranean in Caesarea. And so you picture the scene. It's a public amphitheater, kind of like a small stadium, and it's filled with hundreds, probably thousands of people in attendance from the community, but also dignitaries and, and celebrities. The king and the queen are center stage along with... Um, Governor Festus, the king, by the way, we're going to see, we talked about this last week, he's there. His queen is kind of a weird deal because she's his 
half-sister, but she's also his girlfriend, which is weird. It also kind of comes into play in our story today. And so there's the governor, the king and the queen, boyfriend, girlfriend, all that stuff. And they're there in all their pomp and circumstance. And Paul the apostle gets led in in chains. Now, we saw last week the opening remarks by Festus, the opening remarks by Paul. Uh, we saw the beginning of this defense. This week, we're going to start by looking at the end and then working our way backwards. I'll show you how. So let's begin by reading Acts chapter 26, starting in verse 19. This is Paul speaking. He says, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying, that, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and I speak to him boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might be such as I am, except for these chains. Here at the end of Paul's defense, King Agrippa realizes something as he's listening to Paul speak. He realizes that what Paul is really after here is not primarily to defend himself. That Paul's not actually primarily trying to get himself off the hook. Paul is actually using this trial as an occasion, as an opportunity, as he's speaking to all these people to persuade them to put their faith in Jesus Christ and become Christians. And when King Agrippa realizes this, he says, he says to Paul, wait a second, are you trying to convert me? And Paul says, not just you, I'm trying to convert all these people in here. I want everybody to be as I am, except for these chains. Absolutely, I'm trying to convert you, but not just you. See, Paul is trying to persuade these people to become Christians. He wants them to change their minds about Jesus. He wants them to uh, embrace Jesus with their hearts, receive the gospel, give their lives over to God. Now, why? First of all, let's talk about this. Why should he even care what they think or believe? Because sometimes, you know, when we talk about this idea of persuasion, persuading other people to believe something, now some people would say that's extremely presumptuous. Why should you or anybody think that other people need to believe what they believe? I mean, isn't it enough for Paul to just believe what he believes? Why can't he just do his own thing and let these people do their thing and believe whatever they want to believe? So before we talk about Paul's methods, let's talk first about Paul's motivation. Why he would want to persuade these people to become Christians. Here's what Paul's motivation is. He has come to believe that this is true. You see, he has come to believe that this is true. And if it is true, then the stakes are extremely high. Then this is not just a matter of life and death. This is a matter of eternity. And for that reason, Paul cannot just keep this to himself. Imagine with me, if you would, someone that you know. Maybe it's someone you've never met before. Maybe you, you see someone for the first time. But in this person that you see, you see in them the symptoms of a disease that you used to have. 
and you know that that disease is life-threatening. You know that what had to be done in your life to heal you from that disease. But the problem is that that person that you're talking to or seeing, they don't even realize that they're sick. They don't think anything's wrong. So what would you do? Well, you would start by telling them your story, telling them about your experience. And then what would you do? You would try to persuade them, wouldn't you? You see, if you care about someone and you know the truth about their condition and you know how they can be saved, when those two meet, love and truth, when those two are there at the same time, you cannot help but be a person on a mission. You see, if you have the truth, but you don't care about that other person, you say, well, I don't care what happens to that person. Then you say, well, then I'll just keep this to myself because I don't care about that other person. If, on the other hand, you care about people, but you don't know how to help them, then you really have nothing to say. But see, when you've got both, when you know the truth, and when you have love, you have to be, it, it's required of you that you be a person on a mission. And that is what we have as Christians. We have love and we have the truth. And that's why we seek always to persuade people to embrace the gospel and put their faith in Jesus Christ so that they might be made right with God. So they might be set free from the curse of sin and death. So they might have real true life and real true hope and joy and happiness. So here's Paul's motivation, and it's ours as well, for seeking to persuade people to put their faith in Jesus and embrace the gospel. Now, how does he go about doing that? That's the next question. Now, the question I began with this morning was this. How did you come to be persuaded of the things that you believe? How did you come to believe the things that you believe? How does anybody come to be persuaded that anything is true? Well, the answer is, it's complicated. It's very complicated. Whatever a person believes or doesn't believe is always the result of several factors. Uh, it's different things such as uh, factual evidence, rational arguments, but also experiences, personal experiences, as well as the people who are around you. I read up on this topic a little bit this week. How do people make decisions? And, uh, you know, different people have different ideas. They focus on different aspects. One author I read said this, that in his opinion, all people basically make decisions based on their emotions, which are driven by two basic desires. One is the desire for pleasure, and the other is the desire to avoid pain. And then after we've made our basically emotionally driven decisions, then we try to justify those decisions with logical reasons. That's what we call a rationalization. Now, you may not agree with that, but that's certainly an aspect of it. Now, here's another one. Studies have shown that people also tend to be persuaded by the ideas of people that they like or even more by the people that they want to like them. This is why we give so much credence to the opinions of celebrities and sports figures. You know, you watch these public service announcements and you wonder, just because this guy's good at basketball... What does that mean? How does he know anything about politics, right? Like, why is he instructing me about politics? Well, here's the reason. It's because people, and people know this, is that people are more apt to change their opinion, change what they believe based on the opinions of people who they like or even more, who they want to like them. So sometimes also, having certain beliefs includes you in a particular community. So in order to belong to a particular community, in order to be accepted, you have to have certain beliefs. So there's also a social aspect to how we are persuaded to believe things. So in other words, there are several factors that come into play when we talk about how people come to be persuaded and believe the things that they believe, persuaded that something's true. 
So as Paul, as he's seeking to persuade these people to put their faith in Jesus, he does it in more than one way. He makes more than one appeal to them. First of all, he makes a rational appeal. And secondly, we're going to look at the personal appeal. So first of all, let's talk about the rational argument or the rational appeal that Paul makes. Paul begins this speech in the part that we didn't read yet. He begins by telling the story of his conversion. We've, we've read it a couple times now in the book of Acts. He was traveling down this road to Damascus, and then he, he was going to Damascus to persecute Christians, and then he sees this bright light that blinds him, which knocks him down, and he hears this voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, that's Paul's Hebrew name, you know, why are you persecuting me? And he says, well, who are you? And he, the voice says, I am Jesus. So Paul's talking about having this vision of Jesus, Jesus who died and then rose from the dead. And then Festus, the Roman governor, this is where we began, Festus, this Roman governor, interrupts him and says in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. And why does he think Paul's out of his mind? Well, because Paul's talking about visions and talking to people who are dead, but now they're alive and God's speaking to him. And he says basically, Paul, you are nuts, man. You may have all these degrees and PhDs and whatever, but you are nuts. And Paul says, you know what, Festus? I am not nuts. I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. He says, I am speaking true and rational words. Now think about that phrase, true and rational words. Then he turns his attention to King Agrippa and he says, The king knows about these things and I speak boldly to the king. I know that none of these things has escaped his notice for none of these things happened in a corner. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, Festus, you, you know, you're from Rome. You're not from around here. You haven't been here for the past 20, 30 years. So sure, maybe you think that this stuff is crazy, but Agrippa... You're different. You grew up here. You know. See, a King Agrippa would have been about eight years old when Jesus died and rose from the dead. But yet, King Agrippa grew up in the aftermath of those things. And so Paul looks Agrippa in the eye and he says with all confidence, Agrippa, you know that I'm not crazy. You know it. You know there's a ton of evidence for what I'm talking about. Think about this, for example. Think about Jesus' miracles. The New Testament records a couple dozen miracles that Jesus did in public. They were seen by hundreds and actually thousands, even tens of thousands in some cases, tens of thousands of people. And yet the number of miracles that's recorded in the Bible, we're told even in the Bible that that is only a fraction of the true number of miracles that Jesus actually did. In the Gospel of John, John tells us that not all the things which Jesus did were recorded because if they were, I mean, there wouldn't, it would be more than could fill a bunch of books. And so if there were so many miracles that Jesus did and, and thousands of people saw them, now think about this. This is only about 20 years later. You know what happened 20 years ago? 1996. How many people remember 1996 pretty clearly? I do. Right, 20 years ago. That's not that long ago. 1996. How many of us were alive then? Uh, probably a bunch of us, right? And so you can imagine Agrippa, he must have grown up hearing stories there in Israel of people who had seen things that Jesus did. People who would say, you know, I don't know about these Christians. They might be, they might be blasphemous. I'm not sure. Uh, and I don't know if Jesus really was the Messiah, but I'll tell you this. I saw him heal a guy, and it was legit. Like, it was real. I saw a guy who was blind, and then he could see. I saw a person who was a leper, and they were cleansed of leprosy. I've never seen anything like that. No one's ever seen anything like that. And you couldn't argue with it. I was there, man. I saw it. 
You see, we read about also a time when, when Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he appeared to a group of 500 people at one time. 500 people. And it says there that many of those people at the writing of that letter, they were still alive. Eyewitnesses, hundreds of them, they're still around. You can go ask them. That would hold up in court. Many of these people, their lives had been transformed because of it. Many of them had even died because of it. See, no one's going to give their life for something which they know is a hoax. And yet these people gave their lives for this. So Paul says to Agrippa, you know what I'm talking about, Agrippa. You've been here for the last 20 years. You grew up here. You know the evidence. You've heard the stories. These things were not done in private. This wasn't done behind closed doors. This was done in public for everybody to see. Thousands of people saw it, and most of them are still alive and walking around today. And then Paul gives another argument for reason. He points to the Bible. And he says, verse 22, he says, I stand here saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses always said would come to pass. And then verse 27, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe the prophets. See, Paul's pointing to the Bible and he's saying, consider the Bible. You want proof that Jesus is who he says he is? Consider the Bible. Here's a collection of writings, even if we just talk about the Old Testament, written by over two dozen different authors, many of them who never met over the course of 1,500 years, and yet they all come together to tell one story, the story of the Messiah who is to come, the story of how God is going to redeem the world and set us free from this curse of sin and death that we're under. He's going to send a Savior, a person who will be like no other person who's ever lived before, and he will suffer and he will die for the sins of the people and he will usher in an everlasting kingdom of peace that's what the old testament that's the story the old testament tells and so paul says am i saying anything different than what the prophets and moses always said would come to pass do you believe the prophets because if you do then what i'm saying is not crazy at all do you believe the prophets king agrippa i know you believe the prophets see this is a rational argument from the Bible. He's saying, look, if you believe the Bible, this is what the Bible says. And so what's Agrippa's response? Check it out. Does he say, no, Paul, you really are nuts. You really are crazy. No, he doesn't say that. He says, wait a second, are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul says, absolutely, that's exactly what I'm doing. And in the end, if you read the last few verses of the chapter, here's what Agrippa says. He, he's, he's kinda, he dodges the issue. And it's really a concession because he never says that Paul is wrong. He says, well, basically he says, well, there's actually something to what you're saying there, Paul. He doesn't say that Paul's wrong. He dodges the issue and he says, you know what, there is something to what you're saying. He says in the end, this man should not be in jail. That's all he says in the end. See, the first way that Paul sought to persuade Agrippa and the others was through a rational appeal. The discussion of the facts of the evidence, of the logic behind why having faith in Jesus is absolutely reasonable. To put your trust in Jesus, I'll tell you this, it's not a blind step into darkness, right? It's not, it's not a blind step of faith into some great darkness. It is a step of faith for which there is very good reason and there is ample evidence, as Christians, we don't just believe in God because we feel it, because we feel that he exists and, and we feel that he answers our prayers. No, we, we have reason to believe, reason to believe. We use our minds. We come to the conclusion based on the evidence that God does exist because of the proof that he's there. 
I, I put this in those, I told you about those mobile notes. Well, I put this in there. There's a link to a book, which I would recommend for all of you. And if you're not using the app, just write it down. It's The Reason for God. It's written by Timothy Keller. The Reason for God, he goes through and lists a bunch of evidence for why we should believe that there's a God. I'd recommend that to any of you to read. Uh, we believe that Jesus was who he said he was because we look at the overwhelming evidence for it. The archaeological evidence, the evidence from written history, the evidence of what happened in the world as a result of Jesus' life, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. If you only believe in God because you just feel that he exists and you feel like he answers your prayers, well then let me ask you, what's, what are you going to do when you don't feel those things? If you don't feel those things, what if you feel them for a while, but then those feelings go away? You just stop feeling like God exists. You stop feeling like he's there. Does he cease to exist in your mind? Well, let me tell you this. If God exists, if Christianity is true, it's true whether you feel it or not. You see, the Christian faith is based on certain factual claims about certain events that took place in specific places at specific times. That's why Paul, the story of his conversion to Christianity is this. I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. I didn't like Christianity. I didn't feel like it was true. I didn't like Christians. I didn't feel that they were right. But in spite of that, in spite of my feelings, in spite of my thoughts, I was faced with certain facts, certain evidences that I could not deny. And that's why I became a Christian. That's Paul's story. Paul is challenging Agrippa and everyone else here in this amphitheater to put their faith in Jesus and what he did for them. Why? Because it's true. Paul says in verse 29, I speak to you the words of truth and reason. Jesus really was the Messiah. These are the claims that Christianity makes, that Jesus really was the Messiah sent from God to take the penalty for our sins. Jesus really did die on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem. He really did rise from the dead. Paul is telling them that they should believe it, and the reason they should believe it is because it's true. Whether they like it or not, whether they feel like it or not, it's true. He says, look at me. I didn't like it. I didn't want to believe it at first, but I looked at the facts, and I couldn't argue with them. I couldn't deny them. And I want you to do the same. I want you to look at the facts and come to a rational decision based on the evidence. And I would say that to all of you who are here today. I want you to embrace the gospel. I want you to believe in Jesus and believe the gospel. Why? Because it's true. And you as a rational person, you have a responsibility to live your life according to what is true. But it wasn't only a rational appeal that Paul made as he tried to persuade Agrippa that day. He made first a rational appeal, but he also made a personal appeal. And that's what we're going to look at next. Paul tells them his story of what happened in his life, how he came to be persuaded. He says at the beginning of his speech, as we began last week, I was a Pharisee. I was the strictest kind of Jew that there is. Now we'll continue from verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them and I punished them often in synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. In raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He says, I, I wasn't a Christian. In fact, I didn't like Christians. I persecuted Christians. I oversaw the, the killing of Christians, and I thought that I was doing God a favor by doing so. Verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. 
And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand to your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things which you have seen me do, or you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Okay, so this is the third time in the book of Acts that we have read Paul's story of his conversion. It was a story that Paul told often as he explained how he, the last person that anyone would have ever expected to become a Christian, how he became a Christian, how he put his faith in Jesus. He was on this road to Damascus to persecute Christians, and God interrupted his life and spoke to him. And here's what God says. He says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad was a sharp stick that, you know, uh, ranchers would use to prod cattle. It's something that shepherds would use to poke their sheep and get them going in the right direction. Because sheep uh, aren't very smart. Like, they do a lot of stuff. Like, they walk off cliffs and die, and they, they fall in water and drown. And so a shepherd, the sheep need a shepherd. They need a shepherd to guide them and to look out for them. They have no natural defenses, right? They just kind of fall over and let anybody do what they want to them. So shepherds never did anything except what was good for the sheep. They would never do something to the sheep except for what was its own good. But oftentimes, the only way to get the sheep to do the right thing was to poke them with a pointy stick, to goad them, we would say. Now, you can imagine a, a stubborn sheep, a stubborn ox, right, whose shepherd or, or rancher is trying to get it to go in a certain direction, and the sheep or the ox doesn't want to, and they're being stubborn, and they would kick against that sharp stick. Well, what's going to happen? Well, they're just going to cause themselves more discomfort and pain because kicking against sticks that are pointy hurts. So what God is saying here to Paul is this. You have been resisting me. You have been stubbornly resisting me. I've been trying to goad you and prod you to go in the direction that I want you to go, but you've been kicking and fighting against me. And I know that you're not happy. I know that you're miserable. It's not easy to kick against the goads, is it, Paul? Outwardly, Paul was confident. He was very religious. But on the inside, he was tormented. He was full of guilt. He was full of shame. He was full of insecurity and, and fear. See, here's what Paul came to realize when he encountered Jesus. He came to realize that the things which he had always wanted in his life, he could never have except through Jesus. See, what were the things that Paul really wanted in his life? He wanted to be a good person, and he wanted to have a connection with God. See, that's why he became a Pharisee, right? That's why he was so zealous for his religion. But here's what he came to realize, that those things that he wanted so badly in life, he could never have them. And you know why? Because of himself. He was the problem. The thing which kept him from attaining the things which he desired most was himself. He wanted to be a good person. He wanted to have a connection with God. Why couldn't he have those things? Here's why. There was something deeply rooted within him at the core of his being that held him back from that. In the seventh chapter of his letter to the Romans, Paul talks about this. He says that he had this realization that he came to. He says, there he, I had this realization. My whole life, I've been trying to be a good person so that I could have a connection with God. But no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't shake this one dynamic that I felt that was at work in me. The good that I wanted to do, I couldn't do it. 
And, and the wrong things that I didn't want to do, I just kept doing those things. In my heart, he says, I delighted in the law of God, but in my body, it was as if I was enslaved to another force. And it's as if I have the desire to do what is right, but I do not have the ability to carry it out. You see, I am my own worst enemy. That's what he's saying. I am the problem holding myself back from that which I really, truly desire at the core of my being. And maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you've felt this tension before. And here's what Paul says. He says, I realized that the problem was that sin dwells within me. The problem is here. The problem is inside of me. And for that reason, there's this terrible irony that the things that I desire most in life, I can never have them, and the reason is me. And this led Paul to get to the point where he finally cried out there. He says this in Romans 7. He cried out at one point and he said, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? got to the point where he realized, I can't do this on my own. I need someone to set me free, to save me from these things that are destroying me, that's inside of me. Who can deliver me from this body of death? And then he says triumphantly, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he says there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law could not do. By sending his own son, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Jesus came and on the cross he died for our sins so that we could be justified before God. That means to be made just as if we'd never sinned. Do you see, Paul came to see that the very things that he had wanted most in life, he could never have except through Jesus. He wanted to be a good person. He wanted to have a connection with God, but he could never have those things. And the problem was him. But through Jesus, through Jesus, he could have all of those things which he had always wanted. Through Jesus, he could have a connection with God. Through Jesus, he could become righteous. Through Jesus, he could have power over the things that he was enslaved to. He could have the power to overcome those things. And the same is true for Agrippa. The same is true for you. The same is true for me. The things that you want most in life, you can never have them. And the problem is you. The problem is inside of you. But you can have them through Jesus. What are the things that we all desire, that all people desire more than anything? We desire true, deep, lasting happiness and fulfillment. We desire unconditional love and acceptance. We desire forgiveness from our past. We desire redemption. We desire a new life. We desire a connection with the divine. And when life is over, we desire to go to heaven and have eternal life. These are the things which all people desire in their inner being. The only way to have them is through Jesus Christ. One author puts it this way. I like this. He says, the gospel, what it does is it explains you and then it resolves you. The gospel explains the problem, what's wrong with you, and then it gives you the resolution to the problem. And then Paul says in verse 19, he says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Do you see what he's saying? This is a personal appeal to Agrippa. Paul's saying, I was resisting God. I, uh, God was calling me, and I was fighting against it. He was prodding, and I was resisting. But on that day, I made a decision that I would stop resisting God, that I would put my faith in Jesus, and I would embrace the gospel, that it was not only true, but that it was true for me. How about you, Agrippa? How about all of you here? Are you resisting God? Are you kicking against the goads like I was? It's not worth it. 
Look, look to Jesus, see what he did for you and put your faith in him. He says, turn to God and do the works befitting repentance. You see, the gospel doesn't only make rational sense, it also makes personal sense. Maybe you've been going to church for many years, but there has to come a time in your life when you don't only agree with the gospel in theory, when you don't only just nod your head and say, yeah, I agree, that's true, but when you realize that you have been resisting God, that you need a Savior, that the gospel speaks to you. It's not just true, but it's true for you. And that only in Jesus Christ will you find those things which you've been searching for your entire life. You see, it can't just be rational. It also has to be personal. Paul brought Agrippa and all of his hearers to a place of decision. Paul wasn't too afraid to ask the question, to put him on the spot and say, do you believe? He's challenging them to make a decision and to put their faith in Jesus. And Agrippa says in verse 28, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Uh, another translation puts it this way, you almost persuade me. Almost, Paul. I'm almost there. The idea here is this. Paul, if you keep on talking, you're probably going to persuade me to be a Christian. I'm almost there. But then what does he do? Verse 30. Then the king arose and the governor, Bernice, the governor and Bernice with him, and they left. They walked away. He says, I'm almost there. If you keep talking, you're going to persuade me, but I'm not going to let that happen. He stands up and he walks away. I'm done. Meeting's over. Thank you all for being here. Paul brought these people to a place of decision, but Agrippa, the one he's speaking to personally, he refuses to make a decision. He stands up and he walks away. Now, here's what you need to understand. Here's what Agrippa needs to understand. To not make a decision is a decision. It, to be undecided is to be decided. You see, Agrippa made a decision this day. He might think that he's saying, I'm not going to choose, but he is making a very concrete decision this day. Sadly, even though he knows that what Paul is saying is true, he chooses not to put his faith in Jesus. He says, almost, I'm almost there, Paul. I'm this close. But let me tell you, to be almost a Christian is to not be a Christian. It's like almost having your sins forgiven, almost having eternal life. It's kind of like being a skydiver and almost pulling the cord on your parachute. It's not enough. Agrippa made his decision that day, and tragically, he said no. He said no to the gospel. He said no to salvation. He said no to forgiveness, no to God, no to redemption, no to eternal life. And you wonder, why? Why would you do that? Haven't you ever asked that question before? I know I have. If Christianity is so true, if Christianity is so good, if the gospel is true and it's so wonderful, then why doesn't everybody believe? Why doesn't everybody say yes to this? Why wouldn't, who would say no to salvation and eternal life and forgiveness and relationship with God? Well, I can tell you why Agrippa rejected it. I think there's a major clue in this also as to why most people who reject Christianity reject it. Picture the scene again. There's Agrippa. Who's on his left? It's Bernice. Bernice, his half-sister slash girlfriend who he's living in this weird, incestuous relationship with. And who's on Agrippa's right? It's Governor Festus from Rome. This is a powerful man, someone he looks up to, who just a minute ago said that Paul was crazy for believing the things that he believed about Jesus. You know, it's been said that most people who reject Christianity, their reason is not intellectual, it's actually personal. Most people who reject Christianity, the reason for rejecting it is not intellectual, it's personal. 
And that's absolutely the case with Agrippa. He knows that his relationship with Bernice is weird, it's wrong on a lot of levels. And if he becomes a Christian, this area of his life is going to change. And he's not willing to do that. And then there's Festus on his other side. If Agrippa becomes a, a Christian, then what will Festus think of him? Festus thinks that religious people are nuts. Agrippa doesn't want to lose face in, in the face of Festus. And not only that, but there's an amphitheater of people there watching. Celebrities, townspeople. What would they think if Agrippa, the king, was to be persuaded by a man in chains who Agrippa is supposed to be sitting in judgment over? Well, that would be embarrassing, wouldn't it? So for Agrippa, and for most people, his reason for rejecting Christianity isn't intellectual. It's deeply personal. He was worried what people will think of him. He's worried what he might have to give up. And how sad is this? Because here's the thing. Agrippa knows. He knows that what Paul's saying is true. And ultimately, Agrippa, like all of us, he's going to stand before God. And guess what? Bernice isn't going to be there. And Festus isn't going to be there. And he's going to have to give an account for why he refused the grace of God. Now, we don't know. Maybe Agrippa did go away one day and he did become a Christian. I hope that he did. I know that Paul certainly hoped that he did. But let me pose this question to you today. Do you believe? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Let me tell you, it is absolutely reasonable and rational to do so. Look at the evidence. See that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And not only is it reasonable, but it is absolutely what you need personally. Don't make the mistake of Agrippa. Don't resist God. Don't try to ignore it. Don't be so worried about what other people might think. But I encourage you, look to him. Look to him who was rejected for you who obeyed his father even unto death for your sake, dying that you might be set free and have everlasting life. I urge you today, embrace the gospel. Turn to God with your whole heart and with your whole life and do the works befitting repentance. Would you please stand with me and pray? Would we look at this story and it's sobering to consider that Agrippa, although he knew and he was convinced in his heart that what Paul said was true, for deeply personal reasons, he refused to do it because he was afraid of losing face, because he was afraid of what other people might think or what, what changes it would necessitate in his life. Lord, I pray for anybody who's here today, anybody who hears your voice and says, you know what, man, I know what God wants me to do. God has been prodding me and pushing me in a direction, and I know exactly what it is, but I've been resisting. I've been kicking against the goats. Lord, I pray for those in here today who would say that that's true of themselves. Lord, would you bring them to that place of decision? That place that Paul came to where he said, I wasn't, I decided to give in and say yes to God. Lord, I pray for us today, each and every one of us here, we would put down our yes. We would say yes to you, Lord, in the things that you want to do in our lives and through our lives. I pray for anyone here who has yet to say yes and put their faith in Jesus. I pray that today they would say, yes, I, I receive the gospel. I receive what you have done for me. And that they would receive that salvation today. Lord, I pray that we would leave this place with these things in mind, remembering you who gave up everything for us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.